Uh, if you've been around Willingdon Church for a while, then you would be familiar with the mission statement of this church, which is to know Jesus Christ personally. What Anna has experienced recently, she has come to know Jesus personally. And the second part of that mission statement is to carry on his ministry. And as you walk through the lobby today, I hope that you notice that there were banners hanging over your head with five E-words, exalt, evangelize, engage, equip, and empower. These five words, they just describe ways of following Jesus, of walking together as disciples of Christ. And today, the word is engage, engage. You know, we were created for relationship. That's the way... God designed us. We were created to be in relationship with God and with each other. We're hardwired that way. Now, the way that we talk about relationship has changed dramatically over the last 30 years. If you were alive in the 90s, way back, you'll remember that in the 90s, we started to talk about connecting with people, about networking. We hadn't talked about relationships in that way prior to the 90s. But because of the internet, we started to talk about connecting, about networking. Since the early 90s, we've been able to communicate with each other through our personal computers. Some of you can't remember a time like that, but there was a time when you could not communicate people with, uh, through your personal computer. We didn't even dream of having a smartphone. Maybe Steve Jobs was dreaming about it, but most of us weren't. We couldn't imagine such a device. In the late 90s, um, messenger services were provided. By the early 2000s, social media platforms like MySpace, Facebook, uh, they were launched. And more recently, we started using things like Twitter and Snapchat, Instagram, to communicate. There was a time when, during a day, you would only have a few verbal, audible conversations. Now, in a day, we can experience hundreds, thousands of connections through social media. Instead of relationship building and spending long periods of time with people, we're looking down at our smartphones. Instead of talking to people, we just bump into them. (laughs) It's remarkable. You know, a plane ride, a bus ride, a SkyTrain commute has changed. If you observe people around you, if you lift your head, turn away from your smartphone, you'll know that everyone is like this, looking at their smartphones. We live in a virtual world. According to recent research As human beings, we still desire true, meaningful, significant relationship. That hasn't changed. That's the way we were made. We will always be that way. It's interesting that social media actually stimulates the same part of the brain that friendship stimulates. That's why it's so attractive to us. It it speaks to a yearning that's that's just resident within us. Social media never truly satisfies our need for relationship. And that's one of the reasons why we keep going back to it. That's why it's so addictive. But we go back because we need relationship. Studies also reveal that on social media, we tend to put forward a fairly positive image. 
um, more positive than real life. We tend not to share our insecurities, our emotional weaknesses, our conflicts. That's what makes it easier, much easier than real life relationships where that require time, effort. We were created for relationship. So we live in this world where social media is prevalent. And what does it look like to actually engage in real relationship? God has called us to it, but do we actually have the resources still to relate to people in a really meaningful, authentic way? I believe today's scripture passage will help us. Before we open to Colossians chapter 3, let's just pray. Father, we do thank you that you are present by your spirit to teach us. And Jesus, you said in your word that your spirit would lead us into all truth. And so we ask you, Jesus, to teach us this morning by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The first thing Paul does is he describes who we are as disciples of Jesus. He says that we're chosen, we're holy, and beloved. In other words, you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, then we are God's treasured possession. He actually wanted us. God the Father, he wanted us to be a part of his new creation, to be a part of the church. Holy. We've been chosen unconditionally to be holy, like Jesus, to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We've been set apart as the bride of Christ to become like Jesus, consecrated to God. And beloved, that word, it it refers to a special kind of love, the kind of love that you would have for an only child. And so God looks at each one of you with a special love. You are beloved, chosen, holy, beloved. And so out of this secure place of God's steadfast love, we are to relate to each other in a new way, a different way. We're to engage in authentic relationship with God himself and with each other. Paul encourages us to be clothed with the virtues of Christ. We're to put on these virtues like pieces of clothing that are necessary, even vital for real relationship. First of all, Put on compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. Our heart, the biblical understanding of the heart, is that it's the seat of emotion. It's the core of our being. It's the operational center of our mind and our will. And so at the core of our being, we are to be compassionate. Like Jesus. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. He looks out at the crowds. He sees them as being harassed and helpless. And he feels compassion. It's a gut level word. He's tender hearted toward them. He's merciful toward them. 
And so when we see people, we are to be compassionate. Paul says, kindness, put on kindness. Kindness is just a gracious sensitivity toward others. It's triggered by a genuine care for the desires and the feelings of others. You might say, but Paul, we live in a competitive world. We're taught to outperform, to outdo others, not to be compassionate and kind. Paul goes on, put on humility. Again, Jesus is the model. Jesus, when he describes himself, he says, I'm humble and lowly in heart. Jesus pours himself out for the good of others. We're called to be humble like Jesus, to serve others. Not even worrying about whether others are noticing us or not. And again, you might say, well, Paul, in a world where people are vying for honor, for prestige, status, we're going to be humble? And then he says, put on meekness. Meekness, it's an obedient submissiveness to God and his will with unwavering faith and enduring patience, which displays itself in consideration for others. If you're patient, you're willing to waive your rights. You make allowance for the weaknesses of others. You say, really, Paul? And then he adds, put on patience. Patience, it's perseverance in the face of injustice, difficult circumstances. You endure without any hint or need of revenge, retaliation. These virtues are to be produced in us. And you might say, when you think about this in your real-life relationships, you say, Paul, how do we do this? Well, so much easier to have a thousand Facebook friends. You know, just friend people. Oops, you offended me. Unfriended. Gone. (laughs) Done. Life is good again. Well, Paul's instructions for us, they actually get harder, not easier. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another. When you bear with others, you endure in the relationship. You always take the next step. Whatever is necessary, you do it. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, the way that Paul phrases that, that condition, it's like, it's going to happen. The day will come when someone will offend you, someone will dissatisfy you, you will find fault with someone, and you're going to have a complaint, (laughs) which in your mind, of course, will be legitimate. Someone will fail you, someone will fail to visit you, fail to include you, fail to friend you on Facebook or whatever it is, fail to acknowledge you, fail to pay you back. There is a day when you will have a reason for grievance. That's the way life is. So, when we have a complaint, what should we do? Verse 13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. It's an an imperative. Forgive, at at the heart of that word is the word grace. And so when you forgive, you extend grace to people. You show favor and kindness toward those that don't, deserve it. It's, it's a choice. It's not an emotion that just all of a sudden overwhelms you. It's a choice to forgive. And you make that choice because you're called to be like Jesus. You choose to not hold guilty the person that has offended you. 
The person that in some way is indebted to you, you cancel the debt and you say, forgiven, pardoned. Well, what would motivate you and I to forgive in that way? Paul says, as the Lord has forgiven you. Because we have experienced God's unmerited favor. We've experienced his grace. It's a reality for us. And so we're able to forgive. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, if you don't forgive, then you give the enemy, Satan, a secure foothold in your heart. You give him a platform upon which he can build anger and bitterness and malice and a whole bunch of ugly stuff. That's why we're commanded to forgive. Here's a real-life story from Manitoba. On November 30th, 1984, 13-year-old Candace Dirksen, she vanished on her way home from school. About seven weeks later, her bound and frozen body was discovered in an abandoned shed. The case remained cold until an arrest was made in 2007, and so 23 years later, a man was arrested and accused and sentenced to 25 years in prison. The conviction was overturned, however, and 32 years later, Cliff and Wilma Dirksen found themselves in a courtroom again, reliving all of those experiences from the days when... Candace was taken and murdered. Through all those years, they had clung to the determination not to let their family be destroyed by the tragedy, but to live in a different way. Wilma, she writes, and I quote, Only forgiveness held the promise of delivering us from the abyss of depression and trauma. Forgiveness is not a miracle drug to mend all broken relationships, but a process that demands patience, creativity, faith, and humility. Notice that she lists virtues that Paul also lists. Humility, patience. You see, forgiveness, it opens the door to deeper levels of love for Jesus and for other people. So in our society, there's a genuine search for true, authentic relationship. It's just part of who we are, who we've been created to be. We want relationship. We want to be whole. But in the midst of our brokenness, our diversity, our disconnectedness, can we really hope to be whole? Verse 14, and above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect Harmony. And so Paul says, over every piece, uh, over every other piece of clothing, all of the virtue that you've already put on, put on love. And if you do, you'll be bound together, inextricably bound together in love, whole. Perfect harmony refers to complete maturity in Christ. Well, how do we do this? How do we actually do it in our relationships at home, school, workplace, neighborhood, wherever we are? I mean, wonderful words, but how do we actually live it out? Our souls so often feel actually torn, stressed. We feel like we're living at the limit. And if we just try harder to put these virtues on, we probably will become quite frustrated. 
we'll find that we're just not compassionate enough, just not kind enough, just not humble enough, meek enough, patient enough, forgiving enough, loving enough. We'll feel drained. We'll feel like we just don't measure up to our calling, like there's always something lacking. So how do we do this? What's the key? Look at verse 11, the verse just prior to the text that we read, Colossians 3.11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. He's describing all of the people that are in the church at Colossae. But Christ is all and in all. What does it mean at the end of the verse when Paul says Christ is all? I think we need a fresh vision of who, who Jesus is. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. And he, Christ, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then if you scroll down to Colossians 2, verse 9, we read, For in him the whole fullness of, de of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So the Christ who is all, who holds all things together. If we are followers of Jesus, then he is in us. Let's just stop and think about that for a moment. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, according to Paul. And Jesus resides in us, dwells in us. So that means that all the fullness of God is in us. Let me repeat that. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Jesus resides in us. So that means that all the fullness of God is in us. Christ in us. Paul doesn't say, hey, he's in the room. He doesn't say he's alongside you. He is somehow with you. He's in you. E. Stanley Jones said... You can't get any closer than in. Are you sure, Pastor Ray? Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. To them, to the church, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So God has made known to us, to us, chosen, holy, beloved, we the disciples of Jesus, God has made known to us a mystery and the mystery is a person and the person is Jesus and he is in us, the hope of glory. So the hope for our transformation into the likeness of Jesus resides in Jesus and based on this reality, Christ in you, Christ in me, Christ in us, Paul can say in Colossians chapter 2 verse 6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So how did we receive Jesus? Well, we started on this journey by receiving Jesus 
by grace, through faith, in him. And we walk this journey by grace, through faith, in him. The Christ in us produces compassion and kindness and meekness and humility and patience and forbearance and a forgiving spirit, love. We don't just work harder to become like Christ. No, it's Christ in us that produces the fruit of his spirit. We're clothed from within with the virtues of Christ, transformed from the inside out. Wilma Dirksen, the mother that lost her daughter so tragically, she writes, it was only in Christ that I found the courage and the faith to begin the journey of forgiveness. When people are reaching out their hand to God to get on the path of forgiveness, even if they don't have the ability, they're inviting a supernatural love, God's love, to come into them and it helps them move forward. As long as they stay in that mode, eventually they will find themselves forgiving. So we need the love of Christ in us to live real life relationships, right? I don't have it within me to love the way Christ would have me love. Isn't that interesting that Jesus doesn't come to us and say, hey, you want love? I'll connect you to a social media platform. This is going to be great. Uh, Go to this website. Uh, 50 ways to forgive. Take a pick. Whatever works for you. You want to endure in your relationships? Bear with others? Here, some really good advice. No. No. He comes and abides in us. Couldn't get any closer. So the Christ who defines love abides in us, and he, by his spirit, generates love. A Tennessee farmer once said, what comes up in the bucket is usually what is down in the well. (laughs) What comes up in the bucket is what usually is down in the well. So if Christ abides in the well of our souls, then we have all that we need for life and godliness. All we need in Jesus. So what's the key? Christ in us. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, let's go back to our text, Colossians 3 verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul says, be thankful, verse 15. Verse 16, with thanksgiving, verse 17, giving thanks. The Lord's table, it's often referred to as the Eucharist. That word Eucharist, it just means the giving of thanks. So Paul would say, if you want to engage in authentic relationship, then be thankful to God through Christ. 
In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the mark of a pagan life is an ungrateful life. Paganism leads us to ingratitude. But those that are in Christ are thankful. It's the mark of the people of God. Remarkably, if you were to pick up the book written by Wilma Dirksen, that mother that lost her daughter, she's written a book, The Way of Letting Go. And if you would read through the acknowledgments at the beginning of that book, she writes 13 times, I am thankful. I am thankful, I am thankful, I am thankful to God. How could that be possible? How could a mother who has lost her daughter through violent crime be thankful? Well, that's the gift of God. That is Christ in her. And she has walked the walk of forgiveness. And that has opened the door to deeper levels of love and gratitude. What Paul prays for the Colossians, I would pray for us. Colossians chapter 1 verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And when we think of our inheritance as saints, at the core of that inheritance, of course, is Jesus in us. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we, the chosen, chosen by God, we, the holy, we who are being transformed into the likeness of Christ, we, the beloved of God, we've received the gift of redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and we give thanks. I'd invite the communion servers to come forward at this time, and I would like us just to bow our heads and for a moment just thank God for who Jesus is, for what he has done, and thank Jesus that he abides in you. Let's pray. Amen. So we have gathered around the Lord's table today, and this giving of thanks, how should it impact the way that we will now live the rest of this day, this Weak. Paul says in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. That word rule, it means to referee, to umpire, to arbitrate, to decide. So Paul would say, if you're to engage in real relationship, in authentic relationship, then let the peace of Christ umpire in your life. Well, what does that mean? Over the last um, four months, my wife and I, we've had drug dealers living above us. That changes life a little bit. With their entrance into our building, we have 24-7 activity, constant movement, arguments, people yelling, police attention, people overdosing. So often we have asked ourselves the question, what does it mean for the peace of Christ to rule, to umpire in our lives right now? 
This is real life, right? So when we go home, what does it mean for the peace of Christ to rule? In the middle of the night, when we're awakened, what does it mean for the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts? Now, I know some of you live in situations and contexts where you face ongoing tension, stress. It may be your marriage, your family, your neighborhood, your workplace. There's ongoing struggle, tension. And so what does it look like for the peace of Christ to rule in your life? Is this even possible? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, Jesus himself, he himself is our peace, who made us both one. Jesus is our peace. And so if Jesus abides in us, is in us, then the peace of Christ can reign in our hearts through the Spirit. At the core of our being, we can have peace of mind. Our emotions can remain stable. We can make good decisions because the peace of Christ reigns in our hearts. And it's not just an individual walk. We walk together as the body of Christ. Paul talks about the different kinds of people that are a part of the church in Colossae. There's, there are Greeks, there's Jews, barbarians, Scythians, slaves, free, men and women. We can all be one in Christ. And so if we have come to the table today as disciples of Jesus, we've entrusted ourselves to Jesus. We have said we're all in and Jesus is in us. And that makes it possible for us to actually be one in the Spirit, truly one. We're called to be the church. The church, that word means the called out ones. We've been called out of the world to be one body, to live in a new way by the power of Christ. And Paul would say, if you were to engage in authentic relationships, then let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. The word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ. Jesus is the author of that word. He's the content of that word. That word is always about Jesus, always points to him. When we hear the word of Christ, we hear Jesus speaking to us personally. That's why we gather, to hear the word of Christ. Large gatherings, small gatherings, small groups, we teach and admonish one another. When we speak the word of Christ to one another, it's actually Jesus speaking through us to those that are a part of the family of faith. And as we speak the word of Christ, we encourage each other to be faithful. We speak the truth in all wisdom. That means with tact, with thoughtfulness. Not hammering people with the truth, but with wisdom. Speaking the truth of Christ. As we speak the truth, the Spirit leads us into, into truth. We also teach and admonish each other by singing. Have you thought about this? When we sing hymns, psalms, spiritual songs, Paul isn't talking about a clean classification of different kinds of songs. He's just talking about the breadth of worship, Spirit-inspired songs. When we sing, the lyrics that we sing, we're teaching and admonishing one another. Singing the word of Christ. That's why lyrics are so important. Corporate worship. We're encouraging each other as we sing together. 
Earlier today, we heard a baptismal testimony of a man who came from another faith, entered Willingdon Church, and experienced the presence of God in worship. And as he experienced that, he wanted to know what this was about. Who is this God being worshipped? Another person that got baptized this weekend talked about the joy of singing. You see, the people of God, they sing. We sing because we have a reason to sing. We sing the word of Christ. We sing in the shower, if we're like me, if you're like me. Sing in the shower, sing on the sky train. Sing in the choir. Sing. Paul, God's given us a reason to sing. And Paul would go so far as to say, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything. There's a parallel verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In everything, in all that we do, we are to reflect the glory of Christ. Always acting according to his character, under the name of the Lord Jesus, conformed to his likeness, giving thanks to the Father. When Christ has become our life, when Christ is in us, then we live for his glory. And you might ask, in everything, Paul? Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell. He's a a famous author. Um, A lot of bestsellers. If you go to any bookstore, you'll find some of his books like Outliers, David and Goliath, The Tipping Point, Blink. Some years ago, he was writing a story about two parents that had lost children through tragic circumstances, through violent crime. The first story was set in California, and so Malcolm Gladwell, he flew to California to meet with the parent, and the parent that had lost the child there was determined to avenge his daughter's death by forcing every criminal to face a harsher sentence. And so this parent campaigned to change the laws of California, and they were changed. By the beginning of this century, by the beginning of the 21st century, there were more people in prison in California, in fact, seven times more people imprisoned in California than all of Western Europe. But criminologists, as they studied the situation, they noticed that behavior hadn't changed, that the crime rate in California had not been altered at all. Malcolm Gladwell writes that he met a man decades after the daughter, the death of his daughter, was livid, angry, determined, absolutely no hint of peace or reconciliation. And Gladwell says that he left that conversation broken, shaken. Shortly thereafter, he flew to Manitoba. And Gladwell writes... I came to faith in Wilma Dirksen's kitchen when I heard her story of forgiveness. So what kind of family do we want to be? We were chosen by the Father. God wanted us to be a part of his treasured possession, to be a part of his people. 
Chosen to be holy, to be like Jesus. That's our calling. Beloved, each of you, loved by God in a special, special way. Chosen to be marked by the virtues of Christ, to be like him, to be compassionate, to be kind, meek, forbearing, forgiving, loving, a singing, grateful family. A family that lives toward being like Jesus. And the day is coming when we will see him face to face and we shall be like him. But until that day, let's remember that Christ is in us and we live for his glory. glory. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So Jesus, again, we just give thanks. You are worthy of all praise. Lord, may we praise you in everything today, in everything this week. Thank you, Jesus, for abiding in us. You have filled us with hope. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great week.